0: U.S. and Russian aircraft operating in the Mediterranean Sea flew dangerously close to each other last weekend in three separate incidents. In one of the incidents, the planes almost collided, coming within five feet of each other. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Real Story episode on The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today is the third part of our conversation with Eugene Perrier from Breakthrough News. We're going to be talking again about the Russia-Ukraine crisis or the U.S.-NATO-Russia crisis. Eugene is the anchor of The Freedom Side, which airs on Breakthrough News every Thursday. He's also the host of the daily podcast, The Punch-Out. Eugene, welcome back.
1: Brian, thank you so much for having me.
0: So last weekend, at the time that U.S. media, the president, Politicians from the Republicans and Democrats were sort of sounding the alarm that war was imminent. War appeared to be almost imminent when these Russian aircraft, these fighter jets, almost crashed into U.S. military aircraft. One of the incidents, the planes came within five feet. In the environment where both sides are talking, especially the U.S. side, about the imminence of war, what would have happened if, in fact, There was a collision in air and there were dead pilots and destroyed U.S. aircraft.
1: Well, I mean, I think the way to really understand what will happen is to look at the fact that one of the issues that was actually raised by the U.S. State Department of one of the things they would be willing to negotiate with Russia on is this issue of deconfliction protocols because they recognize, as anyone recognizes, that quote-unquote relatively small incidents in this kind of atmosphere, this kind of tension, could ultimately lead and spiral into a war. I mean, just imagine if somehow, way, a U.S. jet you know, a French jet or whatever is caught up in one of these things or a ship or something. Someone goes down, somebody dies in the context where it's, you know, Russia is the worst country in the history of countries or the evilest people ever. We're on the brink of war. We have to defend our Ukrainian allies. That's how events start to get away from you. And I think that's been a theme that we, you and I have been discussing throughout the past two episodes about how you don't even necessarily have to be 100% set on war for war to take place. But by having all this saber rattling, by bringing things so close to the brink by having the whole situation on such a boil that any small situation planes colliding uh you know an artillery shell exploding in a certain place ships getting in you know some sort of controversy and we know these things happen not infrequently around the world where you know people are moving at a high level of tension and there's different little points of friction that in a normal times perhaps those points of friction can be easily deconflicted and you'll say okay well this was just x or it was just y but in a time like this Everything starts to look towards the answer that is the most potentially negative. Like, well, did they do this on purpose? Were they trying to send a message? Did they kill Americans to try to, you know, test the United States?
0: Or, or if Biden, like Biden got on TV after American aircraft were brought down because of a collision, let's say US military personnel died, if Biden came out and said, "Well, it's an accident. Let's try to not have it go too far." He would be slammed. Actually, that political option almost doesn't exist in that environment.
1: No, I think that's 100% true. And we, we've already seen this with certain individuals in Congress. I'm sure there's probably many of them, but the one that stands out in my mind is Lindsey Graham, for instance, pushing for preemptive sanctions on Russia that would do a lot of damage to the Russian economy, which essentially would be perceived as an act of war and would you know certainly cause Russia to have some sort of reaction that would cause the situation to spiral. But it gives you a sense of how those sorts of individuals would react. We can already see with what happened vis-a-vis the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, where the Democrats were only able to hold off the vast majority of Republicans and Democrats voting for a Ted Cruz sponsored bill to put heavy sanctions on Russia and on Germany, I believe, to try to stop Nord Stream 2 by putting in a separate bill that promised the mother of all sanctions to be the most crippling and most devastating sanctions should something happen that is deemed to be an invasion. But what is that something? It very easily could be an incident like exactly what you're saying with the planes, with something happening along the conflict line in eastern Ukraine. I mean, there's all these different quote-unquote small things that in this atmosphere could become big things. And we can already see from the media, we can certainly see from the Congress that there is no possibility to really take a step back from the brink in the United States. Anything other than full-throated warmongering is presented as treasonous.
0: Yeah, that's the thing about war because... Both sides climb the escalation ladder. You know, if one side climbs, the other side pretty much has to climb. Mm -hmm. We have in this instance, Putin could see that the United States and its NATO allies were using Ukraine as a staging ground for more and more advanced weapons and missiles and drones and other attack aircraft in Ukraine right at Russia's border. So Putin says at the end of the year press conference in 2021 in December a press conference he said look these are red lines we're not going to allow you to have Ukraine become part of NATO and if Ukraine is in NATO or if it's not in NATO we're not going to allow Ukraine at our border to be a staging ground for you know this kind of advanced weapons being placed against us at the same time then he mobilizes 100 or 110 or 120,000 troops in Russia also in Belarus so In a way, Ukraine starts to get surrounded by Russian military. That's him making a point. We have military forces. If we want, we could use them. If we want, we could easily defeat Ukraine. In fact, you can't stop us. So it's his show of force. So he climbs an escalation ladder in response to the Americans and NATO placing weapons. And then the Americans really climb the escalation ladder because now it's like the Democrats and Republicans are competing with each other for who can be more vitriolic And as you said, the Republicans say, let's have sanctions now and cripple Russia, even without an invasion. And the Democrats, the peaceful wing of the ruling class, say, no, let's have crippling sanctions later. Yes. So there's the variety in American politics.
1: And it's ill-defined. I mean, they say if there's an invasion, but as we know, going back to this question that Biden got sort of pilloried over with the, well, we don't know what we'll do if it's like a small invasion or a cyber attack. There's also a huge amount of gray area for how this is interpreted. So if something happens, that's where the interpretation comes in. There isn't a clear red line, which is exactly what makes it even more dangerous because it means that there is no, and this is why things like deconfliction protocols are important that don't exist, because there is no exact trigger for what would be considered an invasion that would trigger these sorts of drastic consequences that then you spiral into a much larger conflict.
0: We have the military industrial complex, the contractors, the war contractors, the capitalist war corporations. They think this is great for business. Then you have the Democrats and Republicans competing with each other to see who can be the most hawkish. Then you have Biden, who's worried about looking weak. So he wants to be hawkish. And then you have the American media, the American media, which people say, well, the free press holds the politicians and policymakers to account. But the U.S. media is so imperialistic, so pro-war that they too become a factor pushing in the direction of war. I don't know if you saw that reduction Ridiculous interview that was done on MSNBC or NBC. NBC
1: with, with, Richard Engel, yeah, Richard I, NBC Engel. Nightly News. Their I mean, lead segment. Or it was lead a stunt. Program.
0: It was a stunt by the fascists in Ukraine. Yes, there are fascists in Ukraine. Yes. They were the ones who were the, the shock troops that overthrew the the Yanukovych government in that February 2014 coup when Yanukovych wanted to balance between Russia and the West. They were overthrown by these neo-Nazi anti-Russian lunatics. So they staged this event. I mean, these people are Nazis. Mm -hmm. These people are fascists. There are several fascist groups. Not all of the people in and around the Ukrainian government are fascists, but these people are. And Richard Engel and NBC just went for this stunt. I mean, I think we have a clip.
1: I think think we do do have a clip. And before we go to it, I mean, it really does just show, I think, the point that you're making, that the U.S. media, without a doubt, has played the role of – whether they're useful idiots or direct tools of giving people the opposite of the information they need to be able to evaluate Americans' involvement. But maybe let's just play that clip and talk from there.
2: Some communities are taking matters into their own hands. Just across from Russia, in the city of Mariupol, some Ukrainians are preparing. Basic training for the whole family. Learning first aid to treat gunshot and shrapnel wounds. And weapons training. On a 7.62 caliber AK-47 is Valentina Konstantinovskaya. The 79-year-old is a retired accountant and a great-grandmother. You're about my mother's age, and I can't picture my mother laying down on the concrete, learning how to fire an assault rifle. Do you think you would actually be doing this? Yes, if Putin comes, I should be able to shoot. The threat is very serious, she says, and I think every person in our country should be able to shoot from the window or on the street if the enemy comes.
0: Amazing. Eugene, I mean, there's so many different amazing parts of that, like a 79-year-old grandmother getting machine gun training because that undoubtedly will, you know, that will make the Russians very afraid. Mm-hmm. Secondly, like, who does that? Yeah. Third, the actual organizers of this stunt, which succeeded, are Nazis.
1: Mm-hmm. The Azov uh, but, battalion. Again,
0: but again, the Azov Brigade, the people who were involved in some of the worst atrocities, war criminals, mm-hmm. basically, people who should be on trial. Uh, But NBC, the liberal NBC, they're all about it.
1: Yeah, I mean it I mean it's so obviously a stunt first and foremost. I mean to pick a 70 some year old grandmother to have a very sympathetic looking figure to make it seem like there's a people's war type of atmosphere going on right there in Ukraine. Meanwhile, by the way, Al Jazeera is putting stories out showing people out late at night partying in clubs and things like that and being relatively unconcerned, but obviously it was designed to create a very particular positive perception of the more warlike tendencies, those who are quote unquote preparing for war because obviously we do know that there have been, and you mentioned this at the outset, all of these accusations that the war is going to happen tomorrow. It's going to start at 2 a.m. It's going to start at this time. And that's never happened. We know that the Ukrainian government has consistently pushed back against the United States, saying that they're not seeing the same information that there is some imminent invasion that's going to happen. But obviously, many of these groups that are embedded inside of the broader Ukrainian establishment do, in fact, agree with the sort of U.S., U.K., you know, imperial warmongering going on against Russia. And this is just a type of story that feeds into that kind of reality being beamed directly into the living room of tens of millions of Americans. That there's an imminent threat, that everyone in Ukraine is freaked out, that everyone from the kids to the grandmothers is arming themselves with Kalashnikovs and going out ready to fight in the streets when that is in fact not the case. And in fact, most of the reporting from journalists who are embedded in Ukraine and often many of them who are there full-time are that there's a sometimes they'll say an eerie com or something like that if they're from the U.S. or England but how things are more or less proceeding. As normal in the country. And in fact, we know from the reporting, this is what the government is trying to promote. So it gives you a sense of a handful of things. And I think, you know, one of them being the role of the U.S. media. I think the other one being how deeply embedded elements within the Ukrainian establishment in and of itself are working hand in glove with the United States to create a essentially fake perception of what's going on there in order to influence the American people to back more warlike, saber-rattling type policies. Yeah. And these are known things. I mean, the Azov battalion thing. The reason this clip really became big is because people online said, wait a second, isn't that the Azov Battalion? This is a group that the United States itself has expressed concerns about. At one point, the U.S. was trying to stop certain shipments of weapons to Ukraine because they were concerned they would end up with the Azov Battalion because their reputation is so bad. I mean, the spokesperson for the Azov Battalion, when trying to allay people's fears of their politics, said, well, only 10 to 20 percent are neo-Nazis. Uh, oh, I that's mean, good. Right? That's good. Only 20
0: percent. <laughs> Of our
1: uh, group are actually
0: fascists. Yeah,
1: but everyone, now just misguided people. And I mean, I'm making light of it, but obviously it's not funny because, you know, these people are drawing back to their lineage to organizations that committed mass pogroms of Jews and others during the World War II period. And that's who they're celebrating. But it just gives you a sense of, of where the US media is that even something that not only was obviously a stunt, because, okay, fine, you go, you cover the stunt, but a stunt being promoted by one of the most odious elements of the broader Ukrainian political landscape, it says a lot about what the U.S. media is willing to look past in order to promote a certain image of what's happening in Ukraine. And one that, again, is at odds with, quite frankly, the vast majority of the reporting we see about what's happening there.
0: Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I want to cover with you in this is is how Ukraine is divided. Mm. It's divided ethnically. It's divided geographically. It's obviously divided politically. And all of those things overlap. And it's been divided for a long time the Azov Brigade in the right sector, these fascists who were engaged in the armed insurrection that dispersed the parliament in 2014, February 22nd, 2014. And then Yanukovych, the corrupt but democratically elected president, fled for his life. And they were the power. Those were Nazi forces, the Azov and right sector. That doesn't mean all of them are. The U.S. was promoting Yatsenyuk, who you know, remember, Victoria Newland was mm-hmm. saying, F the EU, mm-hmm. uh, we're going to have Yatsenyuk, Yats, 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 Yats is going to be the guy. And sure enough, a week after the fascists dispersed the parliament, Yatsenyuk became the leader of the country. And he was more of a technocrat, really not ideologically a Nazi. But it's this coalition within Ukraine politics between the far, far right and the so-called Ukrainian nationalists. What they have in common is they all wanted to come into NATO. They wanted to be in NATO. And we're going to talk about that, Eugene, in a moment. But first, I want to talk about Germany, if we could. Because a weekend ago, the planes almost crashed into each other over the Mediterranean. But then there was the announcement by Putin, right after he met with the new head of state of Germany, that Russia was going to start to withdraw some of its troops. And that was taken as a signal that maybe this crisis is going to diminish. The stock market went up suddenly. I'm looking at a quote from Olaf Scholz, who is the new leader who replaced Angela Merkel in Germany. He's a social Democrat, but his political position is about the same as the Christian Democrats, Mm -hmm. Merkel's. So he's left center. She was right center. Here's what he said after meeting with Putin. He said, for us Germans, but also for all Europeans, It is clear that sustainable security cannot be achieved against Russia, only with Russia. We must not end up in a dead end. That would be a misfortune for all of us. That's Germany. Germany has been such an important but unreported part of this story because in many ways, it feels like the U.S. is desperately trying to create crisis after crisis that engages NATO, that compels Germany to take sides. Are you either with us, your traditional NATO American allies, or are you somewhere else? Because if you're with Russia, you too could become an enemy. Let's just talk about the importance of Germany again, widely underreported issue in this crisis.
1: Well, I mean, I I think it's a critically important issue. I mean, obviously, in many ways, Germany is the most important country inside of Europe, inside of the European Union. You know, their economic power in particular, financial power in particular, obviously means that the way the Germans go are going to influence, you know, not just the rest of Europe, but also really world opinion, because it's a country that is at such a pinnacle of the global leadership, as it were. And I think that what we've seen is exactly what you say. I mean, you look at that German admiral who was forced to resign for making, you know, relatively banal points that Crimea will probably stay with Russia. I think most people believe that whether they like it or they don't like it, saying that Putin deserves respect. You certainly don't need to respect him, but why you would have to resign your commission. He was commission. a top admiral and he, he had was to one quit. One of the top admirals. It was unbelievable. It also, I will add, the head of the Foreign Affairs Committee of the Finnish Parliament also had to step down for making relatively similar comments non non warlike non-saber-rattling comments about how it should be revealed. But certainly, I mean, we've seen this going back some time. I mean, of course, the Trump administration going out of its way to try to cripple the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. And that's one thing that's ironic about all of this is when Biden came in, one of the biggest foreign policy discussions was how Biden needed to repair relations with Germany because people were so upset across the political spectrum at what they viewed as totally unprincipled meddling by the United States in trying to destroy Nord Stream 2. Under Trump. Under Trump. But what it really comes down to is the United States is trying to prevent the emergence of any sort of independent European bloc. Not that Germany is about to walk out of NATO or something like that, but they don't want there to even be an option for Germany or France or the Franco German axis to be able to say, this U.S. policy of warmongering, it's too much. It's not what we want. That's not the way we want to go. We want to do something different. And so they want to try to create the ideological atmosphere whereby they have the maximum amount of anti-Russian statements that have to be made by various German officials, where people have to walk back and swear off their relations with Russia, drop out of boards. I mean, we saw this in Italy. I know it's a different country where, you know, Putin had a meeting. He often meets actually with these trade associations of European countries. And in Italy, the meeting they had set, it had been preset months ago, and it's during the crisis, and it almost didn't happen, and you've got companies that then start canceling contracts because they want to show, oh, we're not with Putin, we're against Russia. And so it's creating this atmosphere, more of an American-style atmosphere, where it's difficult to say, well, perhaps there's a type of diplomacy where we can find a way through this. You have to have the maximum amount of saber-rattling, the maximum amount of military escalation, and all of that I think we see happening, creating that sort of ideological block discipline in conjunction with trying to eliminate Things like Nord Stream 2 that create a deeper bind between Europe and Russia, but also then create a reality where there is less U.S.-U.K. leverage over Western Europe, which is a complicated issue. But because of the transit of the gas pipelines through countries like Ukraine— like Poland and others that are relatively hostile to Russia or at least willing to use gas as a political bargaining chip, they're closer to the United States. They're closer to the UK. They agree with this type of policy that Europe should really be an anti-Russian bulwark. So that gives them a tremendous amount of power, having that transit between the producer of the vast majority of gas for Europe and the consumers of the vast majority of gas. The more you start to go around them, the more the idea of doing something different and not looking for those, you know, ultra-expansionist, ultra-saber-rattling, clearly, you know, warlike anti-Russian policies, the more you might be able to at least think about moving away from that. So black discipline and I think actual sort of the physical material preventing or attempting to preventing of any sort of move away from this sort of NATO expansionist warlike reality is really what's happening with the sort of U.S.-Germany tensions.
0: During the era where the Soviet Union still existed, the Soviets were building a pipeline without any assistance from the West because, The Soviet Union could import no technology from Mm, the West. It was like the most embargoed, sanctioned entity anywhere. And yet, because of Soviet sort of reliance or self-reliance, its capacity, its technological, industrial, scientific capacity, it built a pipeline. And the U.S., including the Reagan administration, the Pentagon, trying to do everything to shut it down because... Americans did not want Europe to have any sort of really profound binding economic relationship with what was then the Soviet Union. Now we have Nord Stream 2. It brings natural gas at low cost to Northern Europe and to Germany from Russia. So just for our audience to fully understand, oil, petroleum products, natural gas, these are the key elements in the sort of like the artery, the blood in the artery of industrial societies. Of course, we wanna go to a carbon-free economy globally. We need to, I mean, but for the moment, that's the reality. So the U.S. is saying, and Biden said, and Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor said, that if there's any kind of war with Russia and Ukraine, they were going to stop Nord Stream 2. Now the U.S. has no proprietary interest in Nord Stream 2. It's not an American project. So either they're going to do something to bomb the thing, blow it up, or impose such other sanctions that they would deprive Germany, their ally in Northern Europe, of having access to affordable natural gas for home heating, industrial heating, and other industrial enterprises. Quite something where the Americans can just say, and they've said it in the last week, we will stop Nord Stream 2. Now, if you're a German and you want to be independent, you could be left, you could be right. These are not words that you want to hear. And by the way, I was looking at the New York Times yesterday. Mm. Germany reconsiders gas reliance on Russia. That's just yesterday. That's the financial page of the New York Times. And they're talking about how Germany is now being compelled to build these huge caverns for liquefied natural gas to take the place of natural gas. But the liquefied natural gas comes all the way from the United States, thousands of miles away across an ocean, very, very expensive, something that will actually harm Germans.
1: Yeah, or from Qatar or for somewhere else. And there's a lot of different complications to it. And, you know, it's even funny that the Times is even sort of framing it that way. And I think even the idea that the German or the European strategy is to be totally dependent on Russia is actually false. I mean, there's a range of different pipeline options. I mean, what Europe is trying to do is, you know, they sound like George W. Bush, you know, to have energy independence. They want to be able to have more gas that can come in an uninterrupted fashion from Russia. So they have a clearer pipeline that's less politicized than the pipelines that exist now. Because look at exactly what's happened. You look at the transit agreement issues that have happened over the years in Poland, in the Ukraine. They want a steady supply from their main supplier.
0: Thomas from North Africa.
1: There's actually now a scramble in Algeria in order to try to have a pipeline there into Europe. But they've been talking about that for a number of years. There's a couple different pipelines that come through Turkey. Some do come from Russia, but some also come from Azerbaijan. Then there's the politics of the Eastern Mediterranean, where Israel, Egypt, Turkey, few other countries have been, you know, both clashing with one another and trying to work with one another over the exclusive economic zones in the Mediterranean, where there have been large fines of natural gas. And important to note here that many of the Israeli fines, or some of them are actually right off the coast of Gaza, but irrespective of all of that, just emphasizes the apartheid nature of Israel. But irrespective of all that, the reason why this is such a prize is because if you can tap this natural gas in the Mediterranean, the thought is you can sell it to Europe. And Europe is encouraging all of that. And in fact, there are natural gas plants being built all over Europe to bring in more natural gas. But it really goes down to the heart of something that, and we've mentioned the Wolfowitz Doctrine before, and I think on the first show where we talked about, that the U.S. is 1991. Very, 1991, the U.S. strategy for controlling the world is all about, as they say in the most recent national defense Strategy maintaining favorable regional balances of power. And they're very fearful that Western Europe could really shift the balance if Europe is less in the Euro Atlantic, not gone, but just less dependent on that as their sole sort of international hookup and more in sort of the Eurasian direction. That obviously the US can start to lose its leverage and its ability to be a unipolar imperial power. So the idea of they're being less politicized, easier to access, relatively cheap energy sources for Europe that they, you know, are bringing from all different places. That creates more independence for them. Having their own military capabilities outside of NATO that creates more independence for them. So of course they want to eliminate Nord Stream two. They want to make sure that they get everyone saying the most pro NATO things possible because even if it's not going to happen this month, next month, two years, five years, you know, most of these Europeans are lockstep with the United States by and large. Although there's these little differences, the more you have the possibility of independence, the more leverage the United States loses against those countries, the more their logical, economic, and social relationships will develop in such a way. Because you can also see this with China, where the European Union has taken a slightly different position than the United States. Because as you will hear European politicians talk about, basically, they'd be slitting their throat to take the new Cold War attitude in the way the United States wants them to. And that was a point of friction between Europe and the United States, both in the Trump era and currently in the Biden era. And even going back to the Obama era. So you can see that Europe as the most second most advanced imperialist headquarters, if you will, has a big role to play in the 21st century. And if there's going to be a quote unquote multipolar world, if U.S. imperial hegemony is going to be rolled back at all, a major element of that is certainly going to be Europe moving away from the strict Euro-Atlantic NATO axis. So the United States is trying to head off the possibility of losing all the potential points of leverage that they can have to prevent that.
0: So I think this is critically important so that people don't look at Ukraine in a decontextualized way because the crisis in Ukraine is really about, ultimately, the maintenance of U.S. hegemony, the U.S. empire, the U.S. created post-World War II world order, whereby the defeated enemies of the United States, like Germany and Japan and Italy, who had been defeated earlier, and its allies, Britain and France and the other countries of Europe, all of them play subservient junior partner roles to U.S. imperialism. But now with the rise of China, with the rise of Russia, alternatives exist. It's not simply for Venezuela and Cuba and Iran, the targets of American imperialist regime change operations, but for American allies.
1: Yeah. I mean, if I'm a German or a French capitalist, I can make a ton of money working with Russia and working with China. They have to be thinking. We know they're thinking because they publicly say this. Why would we just not make a bunch of money and improve our own capitalist positioning just because the U.S. doesn't want us to. And it's a big point of friction between the U.S. and Europe, and it's so far been relatively smothered, but I think partially why this crisis is happening when it's happening, partially one of the reasons why it's happening, I think, is a fear amongst the American ruling class that even though the contradictions are relatively smothered, relatively papered over now, it won't take that much because the natural logic of Western European capital formation is to have closer relations with the Eurasian bloc. I mean, this thousands of years of history speak to that.
0: I mean, Western Europe, if you look at Eurasia as one big landmass, I mean, Western Europe looks like a fairly small peninsula on the western side of Eurasia. So you have China, Russia, Eastern and Central Europe, and then, of course, Western Europe. And that's part of what China's doing with Belt and Road, is to, to use both seaways and landlines to be able to connect Eurasia And of course, later to the Middle East and to Africa as one big cooperative trading block. That's a grave danger to American imperial hegemony. And again, because the American people don't know this, basically, they're getting their news from the (laughs) sensation. Richard Engel, yeah. (laughs) From the Azov Brigade stunts on NBC. They don't know. They're just like Russia bad. Russia's the aggressor. Russia's threatening Ukraine. Well, let's step back again. There's another part of the context that I want to be able to cover. And this kind of takes us Mm. into something that you've been thinking a lot about, which is what's going on inside of Ukraine. Because again, if you don't know a little bit about the demographics, the ethnic diversity, the geographic divisions within the country, you'll also get lost. You'll think of Russia and Ukraine, where you can't really think of Ukraine simply as Ukraine because there's a lot of different component elements in Ukraine. So we want to be able to do that. But again, just before I do, Mm -hmm. you mentioned Azerbaijan, oil and gas coming from the Caspian from Azerbaijan. Well, Azerbaijan used to be part of the Soviet Union. Ukraine used to be part of the Soviet Union. Estonia and Latvia and Lithuania, now NATO republics just to the north, close to St. Petersburg, former parts of the Soviet Union. They were all one people. So when you think about the transit of natural gas and petroleum products and oil between Ukraine and Russia and Azerbaijan or Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, all of it was basically at cost. Mm -hmm. It was an integrated socialist economy. Oil and natural gas companies were public property. They weren't functioning on the same corporate maximized profits as our fundamental priority operating principle. So when you think about what actually happened in the Soviet Union with all of these different peoples and republics. Whether there was ethnic differences, geographic differences, religious differences, they were one people or peoples united as a Soviet people in a society with a planned, a centrally planned economy. And life was so much better. But now here you have Latvians and Lithuanians and Estonians fighting Russians and Russians fighting Ukrainians and you know Armenians fighting Azerbaijanis. They were all together living peacefully since 1917, 1918, 1922, certainly, when the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics formed that union. And so, as the capitalist counter revolution overtakes socialism in the Soviet Union, all of these ethnic nationalist rivalries become very venomous because at the bottom of it is private property. If you're an Armenian or Azerbaijan or Ukrainian or or Estonian bourgeoisie, then who owns that property makes a difference. But if it's a publicly owned union of Soviet socialist republics and you're a worker in any of these places, it doesn't matter because you're one people. Anyway, it's kind of an important part of the story.
1: No, I think it's a very important part of the story. And it speaks to the fact that something I think many other people don't know, you know, many of the former Soviet republics, the largest diasporic populations are in Russia. I mean, that's certainly the case with Armenia. I believe that's also the case with Ukraine. I think something like one one and a half percent, I think, of people who live in Russia are Ukrainian. So, I mean, you know, just imagine if, say, one and a half percent of Mexico was black Americans, right? Like, it's it seems maybe small, but it's actually relatively significant. And a lot of Ukrainians
0: broader, are speaking Russian Are speaking
1: Russian as well. So there's, you know, the length and the ties of these bonds and the way that it all plays out. And it's just sort of always presented as sort of like a, you know, Russian colonialism or Russian imperialism. But it's, you know, much more complicated than that. I think you laid it out quite well in terms of the long relationships in the Soviet period and prior to the Soviet period. And now in the post-Soviet period of people living together, working together, having different views within the various post-Soviet republics about what's going on. And I do think that's an important part of what's happening in Ukraine. I mean, one of the main issues, of course, is, you know, is Ukraine going to lean more towards the EU or is it going to lean more towards Russia? That's the way it's always presented. Right. And one thing that's always sort of left out of the conversation is, well, why do they have to choose? Why can't Ukraine be neutral? Like, say, a country like Finland, where that's a major part of their you know, long term historical, you know, quote unquote, foreign policy stance is to sort of have a equidistance between Russia and Western Europe and so on and so forth. And, you know, I think that's really comes down to a lot of what we've seen in this conflict, especially the issue of the Minsk two accords. I mean, what the Minsk accords is really about. And, you know, people are hearing a lot about Minsk two. Let me
0: just say for the audience. So Minsk is the coup happens in February, 2014. A war breaks out between the central government, led by right-wingers, the Azov Brigade, the right sector, against mainly Russian-speaking people in the east and the south. That's when the Crimea referendum happens, and Russia annexes Crimea, basically. And then there's a treaty, Minsk One, to try to bring the civil war under control. And then there's Minsk too. That's what the Minsk treaties are. And Minsk is in Belarus.
1: Yes. Yes. And the whole, you know, and there's the Normandy format. It was France and Germany and all these people bringing it together. The whole point of Minsk too is essentially to lock in neutrality, so to speak, inside of Ukraine to really acknowledge the reality of what we've seen with this conflict is that the deeper underlying conflicts that have led the country to be divided on some of these questions of where should they lean, if they should lean in any direction at all, are very difficult to resolve. As we've seen, they can in fact lead to bloody, tragic, deadly civil wars. And so rather than have the country pulled apart by having the different sort of forces fight over what direction they're going to go in, why not lock in what essentially would be a form of neutrality where both elements would have something of a veto power over the other. So neither would necessarily get exactly what they want. You'd have to sort of split the baby as it were between relations with the EU and relations with Russia. And, and this has a demographic component. In it has terms a demographic component. Whether you're component.
0: leaning east or west.
1: It does have a demographic component. I mean, you know, we have a few different pieces here. I mean, there's a a poll that I actually want to bring up that I think is very relevant and this was done by, you know, a relatively sort of pro-EU working type of individuals. But anyway, the nature of this poll is it shows that 44% of Ukrainians in 2021 said they either wanted to be equidistant between the EU and Russia, they wanted to have equal relations with both or they wanted to be closer to Russia. So that's a pretty strong plurality of the country in 2021 after everything that's happened since 2014. That's still saying, hey, we don't want to get pulled apart over this. You know, we would rather I mean, of course, a small number are saying we'd rather be with Russia, but a sizable chunk are saying, why don't we just be neutral? Why don't we just stay in between? And when you look at how this breaks down, this poll, this 44%, you can see it in the representation. So we actually have some maps that are related to that poll, you know, about people who are favoring the EU, joining the EU and Ukraine. And there's another map that's also people favoring joining NATO. But you can see the same trend in the map as in terms of the way the colors are shaded, how the Western part of the country tends to be more towards, let's go towards the EU. Eastern part of the country tends to lean a little bit more towards, let's go towards Russia. And, you know, mixed in there, of course, are the people who are probably saying, let's stay in between. But you can see that there's sort of a geographic component to that demography in terms of how the country is split, which again, is how we've seen things play out since the Euro-Maidan protest. There's another map that I think we have that we can bring up that speaks to this. In 2019, they had a parliamentary election. The second largest party in that election is a party that is, you know, frequently presented as, quote unquote, pro-Russia. Let's... I would maybe quibble with that, but let's just leave that for what it is. Let's just say it's quote-unquote pro-Russia. And you can see when you look in the map, they are doing by far the best, the darker areas on the map, by far the best in the eastern part of the country, by far the worst in the western part of the country. So you can see that the country geographically, demographically, and there are many different splits and divides that represent this between the south, the central, the east, the west. The country is divided in many different ways on this question. And again, just to reinforce, as we've already seen since 2014, these are explosive countries Conflicts That can cause, you know, tragic, devastating wars that I think most people would hope would not happen. And so that's what Minsk is about, is saying rather than have Ukraine be pulled apart in this broader geopolitical game of the United States and certain other nations wanting to turn Europe into a Western bulwark and Russia, of course, being deeply opposed to that, rather have them get pulled apart in that kind of geopolitical game. Why not create a political system that creates enough, you know, autonomy for the areas in the East that have, you know, sort of de facto seceded, that there would be a veto power between the two sides on those issues and that essentially you'd have to balance between the East and the West, but you wouldn't have a situation where you were going one side or the other. That way, neither side would have any inclination to try to, you know, gin up some sort of negativity because the Ukrainians would be united around agreeing to disagree, at least, on, you know, going 100% into one block or another. And so that really is what Minsk is about. And I think the important important thing, and I'll stop here, is the whole reason why Minsk cannot be implemented, and this has been openly discussed all across the media in the past few weeks, is because the at least plurality of political forces currently in the Ukrainian parliament, certainly a number of people within Zelensky's own coalition, do not want to allow what they call, quote-unquote, veto power for areas in the East that they know would not go along with going deeper into the EU joining NATO and all those sorts of other things. So there is a implementation issue where both sides agreed on the framework, but the details cannot be worked out because you have a range of people who say, well, for the East, To have that form of influence where they could say, well, we can't go deeper into the EU and we're not going to become a part of NATO is unacceptable to us. And so then you can't actually resolve the conflict. And that's what leads it to be sort of a frozen conflict. So it's a tricky situation. But that's really what Minsk is about. And that's partially why it's being pushed as a potential solution here, because it's about cooling out the underlying realities that have you know, really pulled the country apart in a terrible way.
0: So there is a solution. I mean, that's what you're saying. In in Minsk too, the second part of the treaty after the coup d'etat toppled the Yanukovych government and Yanukovych was trying to balance between East and West. I think the Russians were preoccupied with the Sochi Olympics. So Putin wasn't paying attention because that was promising to be a big problem in this fall of 2013. The Western media was focused on possible protests against the Russian government, all kinds of stuff like that. So Putin was like really paying attention to the Olympics. Meanwhile, the Maidan protests start in October, really, of 2013. And these are the pro-Western forces inside the country. Yeah. They're the pro-Western forces. They're angry at Yanukovych, who has said no to a European association agreement. And the Europeans say to him, look. It's either this agreement or no agreement. Right. They they draw
1: a red line. They draw a red line. And it's crucial to understand that the issue... Yanukovych was basically trying to play both sides off against one another. The
0: Russians and the, the EU. The Russians
1: and the EU. And there is some debate over what the terms were, but... The IMF, which was also involved in this on the side of the EU, was asking for, as they are wont to do, some relatively serious austerity measures, and the EU was only willing to offer a certain amount of money. Donakovich said, I want more money from the EU, and I want the IMF to, like, dial back some of the austerity. And the Russians then stepped in and said, well, hey, here's a lot more money, and we won't ask you to make any of these changes. And so then he, you know, moved back in the direction of the Russians. So, you know, it was really just a game that he was playing to see who would give the most benefits This is not to a- you. Ukraine to be in their camp, more or less. This is
0: not an unusual game where small countries are playing a big camp or a big country off of another big country, and they don't want to really be in one camp or the other in the case of Ukraine because their population is also divided. It's not simply like opportunism on the part of the central government. Can I get more from the West or can I get more from the East? But how do you hold
1: the country together?
0: How do you hold the country together? Because half the country... 43 to 46% of the country is actually speaking Russian at home, right? I mean, and ethnically and demographically in the east and that whole region and in Crimea.
1: Yeah. So so And the two things shouldn't necessarily have to be mutually exclusive. So I mean, that's the challenge for anyone who's running a country like
0: this. Yeah, and and also this is in the context of capitalism. I mm-hmm. want to really emphasize yeah. this because this is capitalist Ukraine. Ukraine is a basket case economically. It was a thriving country when it was in the Soviet Union. Once the bourgeoisie took over and privatized what had been public property and broke all of the links with Russia and the other parts of the former Soviet Union, Azerbaijan, included other places where oil and natural gas were coming from, the country was plunged into austerity, just like Russia was. Mm -hmm. I mean, the the life expectancy in Russia between 1991, 1992, when the Soviet Union dissolves in 1998 the life expectancy in russia dropped six years in six years like that's unprecedented except in wartime Mm -hmm. so you have ukraine plunged into poverty russia at that time plunged into poverty they're now needing credit their former integrated publicly owned economy shattered and broken up and then the west are like vultures they're like to ukraine yeah ukraine you can come into the eu but we're going to treat you like we treated the Greeks.
1: Yeah. You're and, gonna- and you know, just not to cut in, but, you know, Ukraine over the past you know six or seven years has started having more business with China and the U.S. is putting pressure on them and saying, oh, well, you can't be doing all this business with China. So, like, how dare Ukraine try to find some way to improve their own economy? I mean, it really just gives a sense of what we mean when we talk about the U.S. having an imperial hegemonic attitude towards the countries that it views to be under its aegis.
0: And you can't separate the so-called national question, the struggle between nations or peoples or ethnicities in the framework of a capitalist property relations. When they were one people, when the Soviets existed, when there were the Russians and Ukrainians and Azerbaijans and the, the people of the Baltics and all of the different ethnicities, a hundred different languages spoken in the Soviet Union, because it was public property, there wasn't bourgeois rule, there wasn't that kind of capitalist competition Whatever the differences, standing historical, ethnical, religious differences between peoples did not lead to this kind of fratricidal kind of conflict. And now you have the U.S. trying to manage and manipulate and use divide and conquer tactics against all of these people and sort of favoring, like pretending to be, in the case of Yugoslavia, the friend of Muslims in Kosovo, or, you know, in the case of, china the friend of muslims in china like suddenly the u.s is friends of these minority peoples if the u.s feels it can be used as a tool for manipulation against a targeted country like in this case russia or in the case of xinjiang and the uyghurs in china anyway this is the context for you know we're socialists here on Mm -hmm. the socialist program wow shocking we're promoting (laughs) socialism And we're promoting the idea that there could be multinational unity. I mean, when Karl Marx wrote and Engels wrote, Workers of the World Unite in 1848 in the Communist Manifesto, it was because the same process where the peoples of Europe in particular were killing each other. There was war after war after war where the workers and peasants of each country were led by their ruling classes to go slaughter their sister and brother workers in another ethnicity, or a different religion. And Marx and Engels saying, look, the only solution is for workers to say, we're going to unite because we have more in common with each other than we do with the bourgeoisie of our own ethnicity or our own country. So that's you know the big missing link in this sort of story right, right. now. And
1: it's why peace is so important, because you can't really build unity from a position of war like that. And so peace and a sustainable framework for peace is the first step towards greater unity and greater shared understanding of everyone's concerns and aspirations to be able to build a more prosperous, you know, world, quite frankly, for everyone.
0: Yeah. So I want to come as we're closing up here yeah. to what might be the solution. Mm-hmm. Minsk, too, you said, lays the framework basically for the idea that Ukraine won't be in the east or it won't be in the west. It could have good, cordial integrated relations with both. Yes. The other part of sort of the solution is that Ukraine could go the way of Austria after World War II, where the Soviet leadership proposed to the West that Austria not be part of the Soviet alliance Mm -hmm. or the U.S. slash NATO alliance, that Austria be neutral. I noticed in Bloomberg News Mm. that the story that came out yesterday was like, maybe Finland would not be too bad as a solution for Ukraine. And again, Finland, which borders Russia, was a neutral country after World War II. There was an understanding that they weren't going to be part of the West or the East. Now, these are all actually achievable solutions. The other part of the solution, and there's now a little bit of talk about it, even within the Biden administration, because I think Russia played its hand very well here. And now Russia's sort of making signs that maybe they'll de-escalate, meaning move troops away from the border. What the Russians want is a new intermediate nuclear range missile treaty, like the treaty that Gorbachev and Reagan signed in 1986 that removed all of those short range missiles. The missile flies three to 600 miles. Its flight time is about five or six minutes, or in some cases now two or three minutes to its target. There can be nuclear tip missiles, The United States during Trump, at the same time that the U.S. said, we're going to get ready for major power conflict as the new Pentagon doctrine for Russia and China, signaling that they were going to target them. The U.S. canceled that treaty, meaning that these very dangerous weapons could be placed back in Europe or in this case, back in Ukraine and Russia from the last three years. And again, Americans don't know this. What Putin has been saying is, come back to the negotiating table sign a new version of the INF Treaty. Yeah, okay, we can update it, but let's have a new treaty taking these weapons out of proximity to our countries, which means that the Russians actually have some sense of guaranteed security, a little bit of breathing space. So making Ukraine like Finland or like Austria- Austria
1: Or Sweden and Ireland, by the way, all EU members who are not a part of, well, Sweden's not an EU member, but mostly all EU members that are not a part of NATO.
0: And a new INF Treaty- that could at least lower the temperature because the Russians are saying, and this is what Putin said when he began the process of amassing troops, we're not gonna have these kind of missiles and advanced weapons on our border, just like you, the United States would not accept it if we put them at the US-Canada border or the US-Mexico border. So a solution is at hand. The question is, is there a will? Is there a desire? Or is there sufficient pressure from below that would force the United States to do this?
1: Well, I think that's the question. Is there sufficient pressure from below in the United States? And I think that's a question for people who care about these issues, about what they're going to do here. Because there obviously is will to move on these questions inside of Europe. I mean, Poland, which of course is no friend of the Putin regime, there's no doubt about that, you know, openly came out. This is actually, I think, two weeks ago and said, we're open to allowing the Russians to come in and inspect everything here in terms of missiles to show that there's nothing offensive, that we don't want people here. And maybe that could be the basis of a tit for tat where NATO can then go in and look at some of the things in Russia and we can both be looking at each other's missiles and feel good about them not being you know, what we don't want them to be. So we've seen that. We certainly see in Germany. We certainly see in France. You see in a number of different countries that there are, you know, a number of people who are like, okay, yeah, let's move away from just this whole thing being a giant armed camp. Let's come up with some rules for who can have what where that, you know, are based on, you know, different people's feelings about what's right and what's wrong. Let's come up with deconfliction protocols. So if something small happens, we can make sure we can deescalate it rather than make it something large. And then hopefully that would become the basis for broader talks between the U.S. and Russia on reducing the nuclear arsenal, returning to the Open Skies Treaty, and different things like that. And then ultimately, you would have the ability to start walking things back step by step. And we've seen some willingness... From the Biden administration to move on this. And I don't want to say that there's none because that has been the sub conversation between the Russians and the United States that the US is willing to at least consider these conversations. But unless there is a counter pressure to the just braying hounds of war that are dominating the political conversation in the United States right now, it'll be difficult for the Biden administration to make that move, even if they really, really want to. And I don't know internally what they really want to or really don't want to do, but they've at least made some signals that they're to talk with russia about this russia is saying they've you know put a 10 page proposal back to the United States after the United States kind of raised the issue of these things. So it's certainly on the table. It seems like there's a lot of political will all across Europe to make moves in this direction. And it really does feel like the biggest stumbling block is the war party in the United States, the bipartisan war party in the United States that seems to feel that any potential move towards peace in the United States is somehow treasonous or somehow, you know, going to destroy the country or whatever it may be. So it really is a question, I think, for people who care about this broader issue, whether or not we should be doing nuclear saber rattling that could lead to devastating conflict in Russia, Europe, the United States, because we're talking about nuclear war. You feel far away. You ain't that far away. And so at the end of the day, if you don't want the world to turn into a nuclear ash heap at worst or have Europe destroyed and hundreds of thousands of civilians killed, probably at best, quite frankly, then you have to stand up here in the United States and make your voice heard that you don't want war in your name because it's that counter pressure that's going to create the political space to try to walk this thing back because it does feel the political environment in the United States is the biggest stumbling block.
0: I agree with you. The political environment in the United States is absolute poison. We sometimes say, well, the U.S. is addicted to war, but it's really the U.S. bourgeoisie, the capitalists, the military industrial complex, the corporations who are, you know, present themselves as media, but who are really basically just, you know, profit making and seemingly bloodthirsty corporations. They're addicted to war. And I agree with you, Eugene, time for the people of the United States to come together, to stand together, to say instead of spending a trillion dollars, which is the real number each year for death and destruction or the threat of World War Three, let's use that money to actually meet society's needs. Eugene Puryear, thank you so much.
1: Thanks for having me. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show,
0: subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram,
1: and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com dot com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.